Welcome to EAN Cast, your weekly source for education, research, and updates from the European Academy of Neurology. Hello, everyone. This is week one, a podcast on the basics of primer to MS. My name is Christian Enzinger, and together with Professor Filippi from Milan, I'm co-chair of the panel MS within the EAN. And we are very grateful that Ian picked up this series to start off with this podcast, which I hope you will find interesting. I'm situated here in Graz, Austria. I'm a professor in neurology with a strong focus also in neuroradiology, but generally also running the MS center we have here. And it's my privilege to now uh, be the moderator in the session and say welcome and thanks to your time to Professor Andrew Chan uh, for the time of this moderation, I would just briefly stick to Andrew, if you allow, to make it a little bit more lively. Um, Professor Chan is head and vice chairman of the Department of Neurology in Inselspital Bern University, a very famous university. Um, he has trained extensively in neuroimmunology, uh, starting with his doctoral thesis at the University of Hamburg in Germany, then also during his postdoctoral lectural qualification in the University of Göttingen, and then became 2012 a professor of neurology at the Ruhr University Bochum, Germany. And as I said, he's now working in Bern. He's received endless prizes and uh, published extensively. He's a um, board member of many influential boards, including also the ACTRIMS, and has been working there. So, Andrew. Thanks for taking the time. And I think to start off with, um, it would be a quite uh, natural question to ask you, what makes multiple sclerosis so interesting to you? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me here uh, today, Christian. I'm really looking forward to it. Although I must admit the helicopter is just landing, so I hope you can hear me still. Well, you know, uh, when I was a young resident, everybody was laughing. My, my, my former student colleagues, you know, who became surgeons or uh, internists or so just said, you know, you can diagnose a lot, but you cannot do anything. And that has changed. And especially in the field of MS, we have moved away from merely diagnosing funny diseases to really proactively treat patients. Uh, and this is a progress in many different domains, really, from basic science over, really, we've learned a lot about clinical trial methodology, but also, you know, we've learned now how to, for example, quantify effects and, and deliver effects for the quality of life of people with MS. And, you know, with the last word, people with MS, I think this is the most sort of um, personal remark I can make. So... Uh, many of my friends uh, do have uh, an MS and, and also many of my colleagues. And it's always a privilege to, to, to counsel those people with MS who have a similar life situation to what I have and, and on top have to deal with this chronic and sometimes severe disease. So that is something that really touches me and, and touches my personality. And as you said, I mean, uh, the treatment landscape has um, evolved dramatically and the face of MS has changed a lot. So we are now able to diagnose also earlier with uh, high sensitivity and specificity. So before we come to this, uh, which is uh, as a general notion, 
ask you about the framing of the diagnosis and conveying the diagnosis of MS, because I think this has changed a lot and, and people nowadays still have the picture of a wheelchair before them. So how, for instance, if you diagnose a colleague of yourself with MS, what is your general um, attitude and the framing of the, com the information you give and you provide? Yeah. A very important question because especially younger residents sometimes get lost with, you know, all the diagnostic criteria, McDonald and, you know, not McDonald's, as we all know. Um, yeah, I, I, I believe what the people themselves say, and, and, and they always say, at least in, in, in the German-speaking countries, that's a, that, that's a picture that they draw, the disease of a thousand faces. And I think that that, you know, really describes the disease very, very well. They, what very often is meant is that you do have different clinical phenotypes or different symptomatology. It can, uh, in an unforeseen fashion, hit everywhere. Um, but for us also, I think it means we have a heterogeneity in pathophysiology, And also, you know, it's it's an it it, it has a very different impact on on the individual itself. For some people, it they, they can cope very well. For other people, it is very very difficult. Uh, and aspects that are not very overt may become very very complicated. You know, like in in partnerships or also the sort of hidden symptoms, fatigue, cognitive. Uh, aspects, um, these 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 issues. I think uh, really the heterogeneity as is, is um, expressed in this picture of the disease of 1,000 faces in a good and also in a negative fashion uh, really uh, hits it quite well. And and this is something I try to I also try to convey and try to be very transparent on that. Okay, thank you. I think that's very important and also to uh, come up with individualized treatment goals and uh, stating that we want to keep persons affected with MS in their life and as you, you mentioned, quality of life and all the different demands that come from it. If we bring it down to the progress we had done and you mentioned already the McDonald criteria, so I'm assuming you are, of course, using them, so Probably a few words about the correct use and the incorrect use uh, and the clinical context it needs to be in a safe space. And then also touching about what is missed in terms of phenotyping. So what are your remarks and considerations on that based on your expertise? Yeah, a very important question. Very Also very dangerous question from your side because given that you are our one of the leading uh, neuroradiology experts, and given that diagnosis heavily relies, meanwhile, on MRI criteria, uh, and uh, it, it is really, um, you know, it's it's the different clinicians and 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 the subspecializations, and also the neuroradiologists that have to work closely together. And I understand that one. A part of this series, podcast series, is also uh, is, uh, uh, especially dedicated to MRI. Yeah, it was just meant uh, not to over rely on MRI findings uh, apart from the, 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 the clinical context. That's just, um, I think, a, a point that is very relevant to you and to many other people because it's good to have a, rare, a very low threshold of thinking about MS, 
But then again, if you overdo things, you might mislabel patients. Probably. That's no, I, I I totally agree. I mean, it's it's quite clear. It's, in the beginning, it was to stratify also inclusion into clinical trials. You know, to to have refined diagnostic criteria. Now, meanwhile, that we do have a good uh, immunotherapies, I, I think early diagnosis is paramount also in clinical uh, uh, practice. However, uh, still, you know, we, we need to make sure that we don't lose too much specificity uh, for the sake of sensitivity. And like what you say, do not overinterpret and try to try to integrate into, into clinical findings. Uh, what you, and into the clinical context, what you asked me is where, where I do see still, you know, need to improve is certainly, you know, the radiologically isolated syndrome and, and um, the difficulties also to try to catch subtle symptoms. Um, we did talk about fatigue. We did uh, talk about cognition. And uh, a, a better sort of um, way to move around freely also in this early, very early phase of, of the, disease, the disease, presumably. I think that that is where we need more data. Okay. I touched upon a more holistic view on MS, um, attributing to all the factors we know, including uh, cognition, fatigue, and more subtle and, um, uh, symptoms. Um, in this context, what are the epidemiological key points that you find relevant that we need to consider? There's uh, new data that came out on, on different aspects, vitamin D, for instance, EBV, smoking status, obesity, things like that. Anything you want to elaborate on? Yeah, I, I think uh, the, the epidemiological data that really gives us clues on pathophysiology that I find most interesting. Uh, both on aspects that we can modify and aspects that we cannot modify. You mentioned vitamin D. I think it's, it, the, the evidence that it does play a role is uh, overwhelming, both in sort of risk of developing an S and, and, and MS relapse. However, it's very clear that, you know, all these uh, treatment trials with, with vitamin D are difficult to, to, to perform, and therefore we don't have a clear answer on that. Smoking, you have mentioned, I think this is an, an, uh, something which has a direct impact on, on management. Um, and uh, it's, it's very clear that smoking increases and also passive smoking increases the risk of developing MS, but also the risk of disease progression. One aspect that I find interesting in terms of pathophysiology is that it's really we're talking about smoking. If you think about the Swedish studies on sort of oral tobacco use, something which appears to be very sort of um, popular in Sweden, then it, it rather, if anything at all, um, ameliorates the risk uh, of developing MS. So they really, this really pinpoints to, to some subtle, more or less subtle lung inflammation that may play a role. And there again, animal experiments come into play from, from Alexander Flügel, for example, from Göttingen. So, you know, I like this um, sort of uh, epidemiological observations that you can then link with uh, basic uh, science. And we have a lot of that. More recently, really, what I find very interesting are vascular comorbidities and, and, and in general comorbidities, given that 
all our uh, MS, uh, people with MS uh, will uh, become older. Absolutely. So it's becoming more comprehensive and we need to assess this data in order to analyze them and then put them on a, a patient level. And because you mentioned it, and I think it's so important, specifically thinking about treatment of this disease in, in terms of medications, what are the key points of pathophysiology that you deem important for a clinician? So uh, can we work out uh, which drug should work in which individual patient or can we act as a group or uh, what, what's your take on that? Uh, very difficult question. I wish we could uh, work out uh, which drug is the best for a given individual or a given pathophysiology. We can still not. And this is due to the heterogeneity in pathophysiology, uh, which, as you say, has a direct impact on, on the presumed mode of action of different treatments. Um, I think um, really the, the heterogeneity is something to bear in mind, especially um, because each one of us is... Um, you know, in, in, in contact uh, more or less direct with also industry, they, they send us send out messages and taking into account that, that we probably have a very heterogeneic um, pathophysiology claims of being the best or, you know, better than this and that, 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 that may be, may have to be ameliorated. I mean, it's very clear. Historically, we started with T cells and the focus also because of the animal model and then because also our colleagues from rheumatology understood the role of B cells and we do have some circumstantial evidence. And now we have a very successful story with anti-CD20. And now the novel wave will be uh, microglia and the, and the role and innate immune cells in, in, in the role, especially in chronic progressive disease and smoldering inflammation. And that's really the major claim of, of uh, the novel Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors, uh, where we will expect data um, next year and where probably we will see some approvals. Um, but, you know, will one size fit all? Uh, that is probably not going to happen. Uh, and this is probably for me as a clinician, the, the, the most important take home message. Yeah, and then it's amazing that the treatment on metarium is increasing and um, we're allowed to think about that. But as you mentioned, being a clinician, you have to make choices. So what is your approach to therapy if we just stick with disease modifying? Do you have a certain escalation scheme or some parameters where you would um, resort to early, highly effective therapy or even measure and monitor this so to detect uh, um, treatment failure. So coming back to, for instance, the, the colleague you mentioned of the first manifestation of MS, what would be your key driving factors, decision-making factors to put him on um, disease-modifying therapy A, B, C, whatever? In general, I am very proactive, I have to say, both in recommending early immunotherapy and also in recommending more active treatment. Um, in the end, I think the ultimate decision is really a mixture of different um, aspects. Uh, you, for example, if you take the, the one colleague, I mean, I think it's, it's certainly a, a difference if you have a neurosurgeon where a bit of tingling in the left finger 
uh, may uh, severely impact on his professional activities. Uh, I remember one of the first sort of um, uh, natalizumab patients I, I had ever seen that was sent from, as a second opinion, from a, uh, other, from a different university hospital was a p uh, professional pianist. And she had this tingling in her left finger. And it's very clear, this is a severe symptom for her. And it, it was very clear you go for a, a hit hard and early uh, approach. And whereas uh, I do have other uh, um, people with them as colleagues who are hesitant and who are more sort of safety prone, especially also in times of COVID right now. Uh, and and I, I try to um, weigh this in. So it's always a very individualized, individualized benefit risk assessment. Yeah, I fully agree. It's the, the patient's personality, it's factors uh, related to aggressiveness of therapy, as you said, and also the sequelae of individual symptoms and relapses. So I think this was very insightful and we have to come to an end of this interesting conversation. Um, and I would like to end up by some personal statement, uh, which could be related to the extensive research you did and also acting as a clinician. During your career, things changed a lot and you're still very young, but yet you uh, can oversee uh, several years of, of mass research. What do you consider the most important or even surprising new finding in MS research? Something you wouldn't have expected or which was enlightening or which uh, helped you go uh, along because science and, uh, is also something that has to do with frustration. So what kept you going? Very much follows uh, your last remark. Um, I'm always impressed by what, what we can learn from mistakes. Um, so when, when, when I was still a bit, or still junior, I have to say, uh, and, and, and when, when the first monoclonal antibody came, uh, natalizumab, um, you know, I was educated like, uh, this, uh, monoclonal antibodies are the magic bullet and, 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 and they are so specific and, and we will, uh, reduce off target effects and, and all this. Uh, and then when we had uh, the first cases of PML, uh, I found it, um, yeah, not only, it, 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 it really shifted the field in towards a discussion of, um, you know, as I said, benefit risk and also um, neurologists, neuroimmunologists becoming more confident in their capabilities to deal with weird side effects. Now, you know, macular edema, ECGs, whatever, name it, and you have it, and, and we can deal with that. So I, I find that very useful. And then a piece of, of research, uh, you may also remember there, I was really a junior uh, 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 at the NIH, uh, Roland Martin, the altered peptide ligands, you know, following this clear hypothesis, you can target specifically uh, autoantigen um, uh, specific uh, T cells and, and they did it and they really targeted them, but rather the disease in some individuals exploded. Uh, I think we learned a lot from that, not least that probably really most of MS is an autoimmune disease, one has to say. So, you know, learning by mistakes and, and having an, an open eye, what, what negative findings we also have, I find that is very often very helpful also for our attitude. 
and also for adapting to the situation and then finding countermeasures. Thank you very much uh, for your time and your precious insights. This was really condensing vast experience within 20 minutes and we can't cover anything and everything. So I would really encourage you to also follow the other sequels of this podcast and contact um, Professor Chan himself in case of any remaining questions related to this topic or contribute to um, the panel of MS within the EAM. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Chan. Thank you, Christian. Thank you. This has been EANcast Weekly Neurology. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcatcher for weekly updates from the European Academy of Neurology. You can also listen to this and all of our previous episodes on the EAN campus to gain points and become an EAN expert in any of our 29 neurological specialties. Simply become an EAN individual member to gain access. For more information, visit ean.org membership. That's ean.org backslash membership. Thanks for listening. EANcast Weekly Neurology is your unbiased and independent source for educational and research-related neurological content. Although all content is provided by experts in their field, it should not be considered official medical advice.